This morning I'll be reading from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, you know, we're at a pivot point in Peter's book, in his letter here. Uh, if, if you remember where we've been, in this first chapter, he launches right out with the greatness of our God and the salvation that we have in his Son, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He just starts right out with that. And then he moves right to the eternal inheritance we have, to this, this promise from God that he's going to assure us to keep us for the salvation that he has wrought for us. It's a beautiful beginning to a letter. This is what God in his great mercy has done for you. And then he moves immediately to, well, then how do we respond to that? What are the implications? You know, it it changes the way we look at God because now he's our father, he's our friend, he's our king. So we respond to him in hope and in holiness and in fear. That's the way we respond to one who has just saved us but it also changes the way we respond to one another. If this is the salvation to which we all have, then we love one another earnestly, and we long to grow up in this salvation together with one another. And then last week, the implications are, what does it mean about us? How do we look at ourselves? And we spend time on the, on the privileges of the new identity that we have in Jesus Christ through faith. The privileges of access to God, that he's made us a community of worshipers. I mean, the privileges were were beautiful. So so what I want to do do today, in verse 11 and 12, it pivots to the world. So here's salvation. This is how you relate to God. This is how you relate to one another. This is how you're to understand yourself. And now here's how you relate to the world. Now, from 2.11 on, really through 4, chapter 4, verse 11, it's all about how we are going to exist in a world while aliens and strangers to it. So that's going to be really the bulk of the preaching. But I want to start back at 9 and 10, just to refresh you over the privileges, over the identity that we have in Christ now. And the reason I do this is because I think many of us struggle with spiritual amnesia or spiritual confusion. We forget who we are. And we begin to we begin to bake an identity about ourselves from all the things of this world and not of God. So look back with me in, in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race. You've been chosen by God. That is a doctrine that Peter repeats four times throughout this letter. You're chosen. It, it wasn't a luck of the draw. It wasn't you woke up one day and thought religion is good for me. It wasn't based upon your potential that you might become somebody special. God chose you, according to verse 3, because he, his mercy is so well beyond our ability to trace it out. Because of his great mercy, he has chosen us. You know, this was a moniker that Israel had. Israel were the people of God 
They were chosen to be the people of God to declare the glory of God. But now that's fallen upon the church. We are the people of God. He's chosen it to be that way. And not only has he chosen us to be the people of God, he's chosen us to be a royal priesthood. Now think about that with me just for a moment. To be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be a male and you had to be of the tribe of Levi. And then you could administer. You would be, in fact, our worshiper, right? He would go to God for us. That's what the priest did. But he says here that your priesthoods, your priesthood, your royal priesthood, men and women now, not just simply Israel, Gentiles, you have the capacity to worship God. That we don't worship for you. You're coming to worship with us. That, we, that you are worshiping. You are every much, every much a worshiper as I am. You're worshiping. That, that's what you've been designed to do, to enjoy God. You can come before him with acceptable sacrifices. You don't need a human mediator anymore. You have Christ, the one mediator between God and man. So your access to God, when you pray, he hears. When you sing, he listens. When your heart is torn, turned toward him in devotion, he responds with joy. I mean, you are a royal priesthood. And what's interesting about that is you're a royal priesthood. You know, in the Old Testament, the line of kings could never merge with the line of priests. Uzziah was a king who tried to move into the temple. He was the king of Israel, and he also wanted to offer incense. God struck him immediately with leprosy. They ushered him out of the temple. He died with leprosy, separated from his people. And yet now he merges them. Why? Because God is bringing us back to being like Adam, a king, a queen, both worshipers of God. No more mediate. No more mediating. But not only that, we're a holy nation. And, you know, we think of holiness as moral purity, and it is. But there is that, as Keith wrote in the elder letter to you, that there is a separateness to it. That God is separate from all the nations. We are now separate from all the peoples. Not by the way we dress or the language that we use, but by the fact that we don't walk willingly in sin. We don't conform to the patterns of this world. That we want to live for the one who has saved us. We're a holy nation now, set apart by our godliness, not by our geographical location. No, we're in the midst, but we're different. And, and then last, we're this um, people of his own possession. God possesses us. We're God's, and he is ours. This wasn't always that way. You see in verse 10, you once were not a people, but now you are. Uh, you once had not received mercy, but now you have. I mean, consider that. You're God's. He possesses us. How often do you think about this, your new identity in Christ? How often do you consider, well, this is the way I was. This is the way I lived. This is the pursuits that I followed. These were the dreams that I had, but now it's different. Now I've been changed. I've been saved. My patterns, my, my pursuits, my loves are different. How often do you think about that? How often do you consider the preciousness of Jesus who has saved us? Does it overwhelm you? I mean, are you just sometimes, shouldn't we just be stunned by God choosing us, making us priests unto him, a, a people for his own possession, holy through his son Jesus? I mean, do you, 
Does that, that ought to overwhelm us, I think. This ought to be the identity that we cling to. I mean, wouldn't you say it's foolish when we find ourselves building an identity on the money we have that may be lost, the jobs that we have that may be terminated, the beauty that we have that will surely fade, the strength that we have that will surely dissipate. We build identities on beauty and thinness and money and position and power. All of them are temporal. All of them are transitory. And yet he's given us this eternal identity. Folks, this is a point of worship. If you're a Christian here, it's led me to a point of confession. God, forgive me. I I have set my sights so low. After you have chosen me for your own, I try to identify myself by the temporal things around me. It might be a point of confession for you. If you're not a Christian here, then how do you identify yourself? How, how would you describe yourself? How would you explain yourself? And, and is it not a precarious venture to identify yourself with everything that's temporal? What happens when the job changes? What happens when the market goes down? What happens when you age? What happens when you get sick? What happens when you fall out of favor? It's a precarious way of identifying ourselves by the things of this world. But here, here, God invites us to be his own. So I want you to revel in that with me. My, my hope is that over time, that, that you will be more and more identifying. You wouldn't see yourself as an American. You wouldn't see yourself as white or black. You wouldn't see yourself as a as a there I go again, striking on the nations. You wouldn't see yourself as a Brit, or you wouldn't see yourself as French, or you wouldn't see yourself as Italian, but you would see yourself as a child of God. Okay, so that's what he's doing in 9 and 10. Let's do this pivot, because this privilege that he has given to us, this privileged identity, is moving into a purpose that he has for us. And you see a hint of it in 9, the second half of 9, where he says that we are to declare the excellencies of him who drew us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the purpose is now moving outward, right? Peter's now going outward. How do you, as an exile in this land, live within the land? And so he says this in verse 11. Look with me. Because he's going to go internal, then he's going to go outward. Internal, he's going to go at our character, pursuing an internal rightness. And then 12, it's going to go outward in displaying deeds of goodness. So look with me first at the inward look. He says in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You know, I love Peter. You can tell he's later in life because he's softened. He's, He's not proclaiming his apostleship. He's not bringing up the badges that he could have. I was there when he was transfigured. I was there when he was raised. I walked on the water to him, or at least for a while. He he doesn't bring up any of the unique experiences that he had with Jesus. He approaches them beloved. It's a term of affection. It's a term of closeness. It's like a father speaking to a son about watching his life. He says, beloved, I urge you. And that word for urge is like, I'm pleading with you. I'm imploring you. Please listen to my instructions and abstain from those passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Now, he's not, he's not urging us to not have desires. We, we're all de- One author said we're desire factories. 
We desire all kinds of stuff, and many of those desires are good. I mean, if, you're, if you haven't eaten in a while and you're hungry and you desire to eat, nothing wrong with that. I mean, some desires are very good. What, what, what he's urging us against is the desires that war against our soul. These desires that control, these desires that, that govern, these desires that dominate us in a way that our spiritual life is being impacted negatively. Now, you can think of, you know, the, the most obvious, probably, passion of the flesh that we're to abstain from is, is uh, sexual fulfillment in ways outside of God's word. That, 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 we have a, a, that we have a passion to be intimate. Now, God's given us that. That's a good thing to be expressed and enjoyed with your spouse. But outside of that covenant of marriage, that arc of trust, outside of that, it can lead to the disintegration, the negative impact upon your soul. Now, we know this is an issue here. I mean, pornography is a massive business. And by the way, both for men and women, it's massive. And, and you, you see it even in, even in semi-benign fashions. When you see the car commercials... <clears throat> and you see a very attractive woman that's selling the car. Now, maybe she's a top, maybe she's a grade-A mechanic. I don't know. The way she looks, it doesn't seem like she knows how to lift the hood of the car. But she's selling the car. Why? Well, because she's attractive. She's playing into the desires that we have. And so he's saying, abstain from these, these desires. That they, they move us into and they govern us. Not just, not just sex, but passions for things, new things. I need the latest iPhone, the latest iPad. I need the latest piece of technology. That I see someone that has something that's newer than me, I want that. Or I want the best of something. And it's just this continual just pattern of, of pursuit and pursuit of newer and newer things. Or perhaps it's security and comfort. You work hard. You work too hard at your job because you want to secure enough money for retirement. And, and you begin, and your family is impacted. Your church is impacted. You're being impacted because you have this need to make sure I have enough. But, but it goes on. The need to be right. I mean, the, the revenge, the anger, the bitterness that can well within us because our, our perception or our being right has been maligned. So, so I mean, th- these passions of the flesh can, can vary from subject to subject. Remember, remember, it's the object of the passion that determines whether it's good or not. And he's saying, <clears throat> excuse me, he's saying abstain from these Abstain means keep your distance. It's like if it's an edge, don't go walking along the edge. Stay back from it. So, so what, what impulses do you have most? I mean, when you have those moments of time where you're not thinking about anything, where does your mind go? If you were to ask yourself the question, what do you, what do you love so much? Or what do you fear losing? What do you fear greatly losing? These are questions that kind of undermine the passions and the urges that we have. And the reason I'm dwelling on this is because Peter gives us two reasons. <clears throat> he says, as aliens and strangers. Now that you have a new identity, I just said that to you in 9 and 10. And your new identity means that you're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner, you're traveling through, you're a visitor, you're a guest to this world. You're not a resident. You're just a guest. He even warns us in chapter 1, 
uh, 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Or in 18, he says this. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. That's where we've come. We don't want to go back to it. We were governed. Before Christ, I was governed by the physical impulses of my body. And I justified it because I felt it. But now, being made new in Christ, we have new impulses. We have a new identity. We're governed by those things now. You're a sojourner. You're an alien. You, do you realize that you'll never fully feel at home in this world? He will not let you be satisfied in this world because this is not your home. The new heavens and the new earth will be your home. But you will never fully feel satisfied. And while that may lead you to frustration, I want it to lead you to gratitude because you'll never find what you need in this world. So he says, you're an alien and stranger. Don't pursue these things. But then the second reason he gives is that it wages war. It wages war with your soul. This is a different type of battle here than we're used to. It's going after the soul. See, what desires do is they promise happiness and fulfillment, but, but they never fulfill their promise. I mean, you know the cycle. The, the, the cycle is this, that, that, that the passion will promise you a happiness that if you just pursue it, then you'll be happy. But let's take a few for example. So you, you move into pornography, and, and you look at pornography, or you gauge in illicit sex. The exhilaration is there, no doubt, and the excitement is there, no doubt, but just for a season. And then what comes in the backwash of it is guilt and condemnation. And here's the irony of the whole thing. Unsatisfaction. It wasn't as good as you thought. It, was, it didn't meet the promises that it made. But it doesn't have to be sex. It can be clothes, or it can be hair, it can be getting a body, getting a body that you want. But no, 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 it, that's not thin enough. It needs to be a little thinner. And, and, and so this, this deadly spiral goes down. And, and it just leads you to pursue one passion after another passion, and you never get the carrot. <clears throat> they keep moving the stick. And, and here's what it does. It disintegrates your identity. You end up not knowing who you are. Who are you? You've pursued that passion and that passion and that passion. And, and it does the inverse of what God's trying to do in Christ, which is build his identity up in you to form you into the image of God in its full beauty. And yet pursuing these passions, it, it disintegrates us that, that people that are steeped in sin, they come up and they say, I don't know who I am anymore. I, I, I can't even believe I did that. Well, that's what happens. It disintegrates our identity. It removes the image of God further and further from us. It's a deadly thing. What it does is it blinds you to the marvelous light that he's drawn you into. It it, it squashes those spiritual impulses that God has given to you. It, it, It takes away the joy that you are to have in God. You know, I was reading uh, the Bible with a friend, Matthew, uh, or Mark chapter 4 this week. We're looking at the parable of the sower, and you know the seeds fall in the soil with the thorns, and the thorns grow up and, and choke the life out of the person, choke the spiritual life. And, uh, and when Jesus explains the parable, he says that the, that the thorns are the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. Just those desires alone begin to choke 
the spiritual joy and satisfaction. When you read through the first two chapters of Peter, you've been told that God has foreknown you. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. You've been sprinkled by Christ, clean. That God's given you new life to a living hope in him. That we have an eternal inheritance. That he's going to protect us. That we're built upon a living stone. That we're forever the children of God. These promises to you people, they are unfathomably valuable. And yet they can be, they can be dimmed by the pursuits of all these desires that we have. And so he warns us. That's what he's doing. He's being kind to us. So if you're a Christian here, would you first at least agree with me that there is a battle that we're in? Let, let's agree in the reality of the battle. You won't see this battle in the newspapers. There's no headlines about it. Nobody on the street's going to warn you this is coming. But the battle for your souls rages as I speak. It's the reality of it. We have it. We, you know, many of us, we don't worry about our souls. We don't, we, oftentimes, we take little interest in them. But may I remind you that Jesus said this. He says, what profit is it for a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What profit? No answer is needed to the question. So, so just let us become more acutely aware of the battle. But then secondly, let's remember the nature of the battle. The nature of the battle is inward. It's not outward. We're not a church that wants to tell you, Here's how long your dress has to be, whether alcohol is a sin or whether I need to read my Bible every day. A bunch of the rules don't work at this level of the war. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look after a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Jesus doesn't deal with, he doesn't continue the pattern of, hey, you shouldn't be sleeping with other women, men, or or women, you shouldn't be doing it. He doesn't go there. He goes right to the heart. He goes right to the inward. This is where the battle is. So, so in your life right now, how engaged are you in the battle? What is pressing you most? Is it related to pornography? Is it related to materialism? Is it related to fear of her health? What is most pressing you? James warns us, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The last thing we want to do is be given over to these desires. You know, Jeremy Burroughs is a book we're reading about the rare jewel of contentment. And the reason I raise him up, the book was written in the um, mid to late part of the 17th century. The reason I'm reading this to you is because it's not new to us. It, it, it was there 400 or 375 years ago. Listen to what he says. He says, Christ teaches us what a great and dreadful evil it is to be given up to one's heart's desires. He says this. He says, you are crossed. And what he means by this is you're upset. You're upset in your desires. In other words, you're not getting your desires. And so you're discontented and you're vexed and you're fretted about it because you're not getting what you want. I won't keep interpreting it. He says, is that your only misery? That you're crossed in your desires? No, no. You are infinitely mistaken. The greatest misery of all is for God to give you up to your own heart's lusts and desires. To give you up to your own counsels. It says in Psalm 81, but my people would not hearken to my voice and Israel would, would none hear of me. What then? 
Should I give them up to their own lust so that they may walk in their counsels? He says, oh, let me not have such a misery as that. For to give me what I would have, to give me my heart's desires, is one of the most hideous judgments in the world. We don't think of it that way. We think of it, no, I just want my desires satisfied. But how do we know that these desires lead us to God that aren't waging war against our soul? And I'd say the third thing for us as Christians is that this battle of the soul is together. We have to do this together. You you see the collective terms in holy nation, people of God, royal priesthood, chosen. Those are collective terms. I hope you realize that our sin is never private. It's never private. It affects you. It affects your family. It affects your church. It leaks out. We need one another to encourage one another. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says this, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So we need one another. We need a community where confession of sin and the the transparency of our lives one to the other is important. One author wrote this about community. He said, a church full of people who struggle to confess sin or even admit their easily masked vulnerabilities like hurt, frustration, annoyance, is a dangerous place. He says, why? Well, because sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. That's the James. But a funny thing happens when we confess our sin and open our lives to other Christians. Our pride shrinks. Our affection for Jesus grows. Our life-giving community starts to form. When we're honest with trustworthy brothers and sisters about our failures and our struggles, the church is able to embody its calling to apply the word of truth as a salve to actual wounds. No pretense, no condemnation, no gossip. For who could cast that first stone? No need for facade or fakery. Just a collection of poor debtors, all equally forgiven of an impossible debt. That's what we're to be. To to be encouraging one another. You know, this idea and the reason Jeremy's saying one pure and holy passion is this abstaining from passion is helped when we're cultivating godly passion when we're encouraging one another in the word, when we're speaking the truth of God to one another through prayer, through confession, through fellowship. I was out praying for you all on Friday, and uh, I was out walking, and I noticed the maple trees, the leaves are already busting out, showing their color, and they're just unfurling right before you. And then I looked as I was walking through the parking lot, there's a bunch of oak trees. You know, the oak trees, of course, still have those dead, ugly brown leaves on them. And it's gone through winter, it's gone through ice, snow, wind, cold, everything, and they're still there. Do you know when they're going to come off? When the life starts moving up that tree, the new life is going to push out that dead leaf, that dead old leaf. It's the new life of the Spirit of God within us through Christ that pushes out those, those passions that war against our soul. You know, the... I've quoted before Thomas Chalmers. He was a Scottish preacher of the 19th century, and he wrote an article. You can get it online. I would encourage you to read it. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. That new affections for God have an expulsive power to drive out the sinful passions that we have. That you're replacing the bad with the beautiful. God wants us to be happy. It's a glorious thing. God wants us to be really happy. He just wants us to be happy in a way that we're actually happy and satisfied and fulfilled and not constantly pursuing the next thing. 
So that's a lot. I'm sorry I parked it there, but I, this is a real struggle for us, even within the evangelical church. So the first thing is we're going to abstain from these passions of the flesh, which war against the soul. But then look what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's he saying here? Well, he's going outward, which makes sense because we tend to behave what we believe. And so if we refine what we're believing, then the behavior is going to follow. And so he says, conduct yourselves honorably. He's speaking to us. Did you notice that it's kind of interesting? He says, conduct yourselves among the Gentiles. They were Gentiles. That's like saying us getting a letter from Peter and saying, conduct yourselves among the Americans honorably. It's like, we are Americans. He's saying, no, you're not. Didn't you remember in 9 and 10, you have a new identity? So he's talking to Gentiles about conducting themselves among the Gentiles. Pretty remarkable thing. That we're conduct ourselves honorably. And what that word honorably means is beautifully. That we are to adorn our lives with these good works. That we are to be a people doing good works in the culture in which we're planted. He will speak about, starting next week, how this actually looks in the different spheres of life. So the very next passage in in verses 13 to 17, he's going to speak about our civic responsibilities. What does it mean to live honorably before the king? What's it mean to live honorably? And you notice that the context is hostile, right? He says, though they speak evil about you. In other words, the government may be marginalizing you. So what do you do? We do good deeds. We act with obedience. We act with submission to the government. And then the very next passage, he talks about masters and slaves, about the, 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 um, the marketplace. And what does doing good, what does honorable living look like in the marketplace? It works with integrity, honesty. You, you, you do a good job for what you're being paid. You show up on time. You're honest about the things that you say. And then he's going to go right, and and that's in a difficult context because your employer probably in this context wouldn't be a believer. And so you may be facing some some ostracism from that. And then the very next section is the woman married to a man who's not a believer. So again, you have another context of conflict. And how do you behave in that way? Chaste, discreet, lovely, respectable. And then after that, how do we live in the community? So what he's saying is conduct yourself. What do we do as aliens and strangers in this land? We live honorably in all the different spheres of our life, doing good deeds, caring for the widow, caring for the poor, caring for the refugee, doing things that even the pagans will look at and say, that's a good thing. I mean, a person who's faithful in marriage, it's hard to criticize that. A person who is walking with integrity, even when it costs them, that's a pretty hard thing for an unbeliever to criticize. Doing a good job, That's a hard thing. Caring for those who cannot return the favor to you. It's a hard thing for a pagan to say, that's not a good work. And that's what he's saying here. So how do we conduct ourselves? We abstain from these passions of the flesh, but we conduct ourselves in a way that's honorable, that we're to be engaged in doing these serviceable projects and actions of kindness for people that need help. And what he says is that on the day of visitation, they will glorify God. In other words, there's a bit of debate about that. I think the easiest read for that is simply this. That on the day that Christ returns to set up his kingdom in fullness, there will be people that glorify God because of the work that you have done. 
that you have done good deeds in the context of struggle and conflict, thereby displaying the gospel. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did the ultimate good deed in the midst of conflict to save us. So now we are like Christ's doing good deeds in the midst of conflict so that they would see it and be converted on this day of visitation. So let me remind you, as Christians, that we do these good deeds in the context of conflict. And it will be remarkable. Uh, let me read you briefly this letter. This letter, we don't know who wrote it, written to a man uh, named Diognetus. He's a second century leader. We don't know. We think he's a pagan, but he was an admired pagan. But this is what somebody wrote to him about the Christians. This comes from a period maybe 115, 120 A.D., Here's the letter. It says, Christians, so he's writing to this this non-Christian, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own. They don't speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no pure human doctrine. With regard to dress and food and manner of life in general, They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet there's something extraordinarily about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whatever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but they don't share their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven, obedient to the laws, and yet they live on a level that transcends the law. This is written about the Christian. This is about us. So so we want to recognize that we want to do good works in a context that may move towards a marginalizing of the church. So be it. So be it. We live doing good deeds, and we do them for the benefit of the city. You know, many of us, I think, we have this, at least I was raised kind of with this idea that it's pure in the country and it's filthy in the city. Sin knows no geographical boundaries. Now, we're to do good where we're planted. We're to be aspiring to serve those around us. Are you engaged in some act of missional care? We have ministries, a refugee ministry, there's... There's um, cure ministries working with women who are seeking to keep their children. There are various different ministries that we've held up to. What good are you doing? If this place just got vaporized tomorrow, would anybody know we left? Would anybody know? Our our impact on the culture... you you heard from that letter, we're not to draw ourselves out of culture. We are to insert ourselves into culture, not in a triumphalistic way, not, not, not that way, but in a way that we want to be salt and we want to be light. We want to have a preserving and influencing, a flavoring way. We want to serve others, help others. That's what he's saying here. By doing these things, people will then come to glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's take a minute now, and what Peter's done is he's reminded us about our identity in verses 9 and 10. This is who you are. You are, in fact, a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. 
You're a people belonging to God. Now, with that identity, you have a new purpose. You have a new reason to exist, and that is to move and live in this world. And we do it by abstaining from these desires of the flesh, which begin to just take us away from his marvelous light. And we want to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable, that it's good. We're doing good deeds. We're doing serviceable things so that on the day of visitation, people will say, you know what? When you acted this way under duress, or when you acted this way in a sacrificial manner, you revealed to me something about Jesus that I then came to understand and was saved. So let's take a minute now and ask God for grace. Perhaps it may be a point of confession for you. Just pray silently, confession, or perhaps as a point of rejoicing that God has moved you into a greater understanding of that identity. And then an elder will close us in just a minute. Thank you.